All right, church. Well, I am so thankful for an opportunity to gather with you this Lord's Day and just another moment uh, that we get to open up the Word of God, right? We get to commit ourselves to the public reading of it, right? To its exhortation, to its proclamation. And that is uniquely given to the church and uniquely given for us to partake this morning. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you all do, find your way to Genesis. Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 30. We're going to continue this morning. If you're using one of those black ESV pew Bibles, I'll be on page 24. Feel free to take that home with you if you don't have one. And I believe that we do actually have some larger print ESV pew Bibles, too, in the back by the headphones. So you're welcome to get those as well. Now, as you're finding your way there, as a reminder, the reason why we're studying the book of Genesis, church, the reason why we are taking our time to walk through this, this major historical book is because, according to Jesus, this book is about him. Not only is it historical in telling us how the world began and how the world became the way it is now and all its brokenness and suffering, but it's a book showing us how God has stepped into that brokenness and how he continues to demonstrate his faithfulness to his good and righteous plan to redeem a fallen world back to his own holiness, his own perfection. It's a book about foreshadowing to us the hope that we all need, the hope that can only be found in one person. And that hope, church, is that there's only one God. There's only one God that can deal with the mess that the world has always been in, it seems like, ever since Genesis 3. And that one God has continued to provide for his people. And specifically, Genesis is foreshadowing and whispering that a Redeemer is coming. That God is providing. That God is moving. And he's going to bring about one person to make things right. And that person is Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see today is that God continues to provide, continues to move his plan forward. And as you can probably see from the screen is we're not only going to be in Genesis chapter 30 this morning, but also 31, two chapters, two chapters. Typically, we do one chapter, if that, on any given Sunday. But today I'm going to tackle two of really some crazy narratives that we find in chapters 30 and 31. Now, before you freak out a little bit and you start counting all the verses, there's 98. There's 98 verses. And so I figured if I do one point per verse, when we get out of here, winter will finally be over. (laughs) Right? And we can rejoice at that. All joking aside, we're we're going to be looking at Genesis 30 and 31 through a big narrative chunk, and I'm going to be highlighting uh, the important aspects as we go. But let me go ahead and stop there for a moment. Let me pray for you, and I ask that as I'm praying for you, that you would pray for me in the proclamation of the Word of God, and then we will, I'll start by reading a section of Genesis 30 to start. Well, Father, I want to begin our time before we actually look at your word by coming to you in great dependence once again. 
knowing that it's only through your spirit, Lord, that these words come alive, that these words can pierce the heart of men and women, that it's these words that can reveal to us the truth of who you are, the truth of who we are, and we would be able to respond accordingly to that. So God, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear and eyes to see who you are. And Lord, I also want to pray for our kiddos and the teachers leading them next door as they're considering the same passage that we are in here. God, we want everyone, no matter the age, to be able to come to an understanding of who you are and would be able to turn from their sin and trust in you. Even if they just have a very small view of their sin, Lord, God, they still need you. And so, God, I pray for all of us, all our hearts today, that they would be awakened to your good and great gospel. And we would all walk out of here today loving you, Jesus, more than we first walked in. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 30. Let me just read the first eight verses to begin our time in God's word. It says, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf and, and even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God indeed. Now what I'd like to do with our time this morning is simply to, to walk through the narrative from a, a relatively fast pace, but highlighting the important details along the way. But ultimately what I want to show us through our time is that the Lord is providing for Jacob simply looking through the narrative. So in the first section that we just read, right, we're right back into family drama, right? Family drama. We're, we're, we're seeing the consequences of Jacob now having two wives, two wives, Leah and Rachel. Remember in the last chapter, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, right? He worked for her, but Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, tricked Jacob and actually gave Leah to be his wife. And he married Leah by accident. And then he decided that, no, I still want to marry Rachel. And so he was able to 
marry Rachel as well. And he had then two wives, one of whom he loved and one of whom he did not love. Right? And it doesn't take us to be marriage counselors to look into this and go, this isn't going to go well. Right? This is not going to go well. Where you have two wives and you love one, but you don't love the other. And that's what we see here. It's a, it's a mess from the beginning. Now, although Moses, who is the author of Genesis, right, he doesn't outright condemn polygamy, as we probably would have wanted him to in this section, even though the Bible does later on, we do quickly see that this does not go well. In fact, I would encourage us to, to remind ourselves that no polygamous relationship in Scripture ever goes well. It never goes well. It's outside of God's good design for human flourishing. Because one is loved and not the other. And so what we have in this first section is, it's really a sad squabble between these two sisters and Jacob. And where they both want to have kids, right? And they're willing to even use their servants as these surrogates, forcing Jacob to sleep with them to have children. And what happens is the, the marriage bed is defiled and there's these, these children who are born, but even the naming of them what we see is the sisters are just taking jabs at one another, even by their names. It's a sad state of affairs. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get what they want. And in this case, it's to have kids. And they're willing to sacrifice everything for it. Everything for it. They are so blinded by their desire that in many ways, the children have become a lowercase g God in their lives that they're willing to sacrifice for. And church, here is one, just a quick moment. Good things can become God things really easily. And when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's what you worship. That's what you give everything to. Listen, everything that, every decision that we make, church, in this life, ultimately it's demonstrating where our worship is pointing to. Every decision that we make is a worshipful decision. And we're seeing where the hearts of Leah and Rachel are at. And it continues to get just complicated. Look at verse 14 and following. We see that one of Leah's sons, Reuben, has found mandrakes in the field. Now, a mandrake was this rare flower. And in the ancient Near East, it was common belief that it would act as an aphrodisiac or a fertility drug, if you will. And so Rachel essentially buys this flower from Reuben in exchange, like, I will, I will let you sleep with your husband. And so what we see is, once again, Leah and Jacob together. And in result, Leah gets pregnant three more times, has two more sons and a daughter. And Rachel, who had possession of the mandrake flower, we're told she's still barren. It's, she's still barren. But then in verse 22, we are told that God remembered Rachel. Remembered Rachel. And that's, that's a cue. Whenever you see that in Scripture, it means that God's about to do something. God remembered Rachel and he opened her womb. Notice, no credit is given to the flower. It's God alone. And Rachel is able to have a son whose name is Joseph. 
a son who will play a very important role in the redemption of God's plan of redemption in the chapters to come. So we see the squabble, right? We see just of wanting to have children more than anything else and really the lack of trust in God, right? Nowhere here do we see Rachel or Leah praying and asking God for wisdom or for patience or for provision, but yet God is providing nonetheless. Now, starting in verse 25, the birth of Joseph was a signal to Jacob that it's time to return home. Right? Remember, the whole reason why he came to this land was to find a wife. And at the birth of Joseph, he says, I need to go back home. And so he goes to Laban, the father-in-law, to tell him the plans that, that him and his family are going to return home. But Laban doesn't want him to return home. And the reason why he doesn't want him to return home is because Laban has been blessed by being in proximity to Jacob. As Jacob was blessed by God, so was Laban, which is really an extension of the Abrahamic covenant where God promised that whoever blesses you, I will bless as well. And so Laban is getting a lot of blessing, right? a lot of material blessing and riches from having Jacob around. doesn't want him to leave. And so he convinces and... And Jacob agrees that he will stay. And so Laban and Jacob come out with this deal that they're going to stay, and Jacob's wages are going to be some of the livestock. Right? He's going to get the, the, the speckled uh, sheep, the spotted sheep, the black lambs, the spotted and speckled goats. Right? So they're going to divide up the livestock based off of, of color. And by the way, these, these speckled animals, right, these multicolored animals, that would have been more rare in this day rather than have a unicolored animal. So Jacob is probably getting a smaller proportion of the herd, and Laban's getting the greater proportion. That's why he says, if you look at verse 34 of chapter 30, he says, good, 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 good. Let it be as you have said. I'm getting a good deal out of this. You're sticking around, and I'm getting the more prominent livestock. But if we continue in the story, we see in verse 37 this interesting take that Jacob has determined that in order for him to breed and get more of the the animal color that he wants to get for his herd, that he starts peeling these sticks and putting them in the ground in front of these watering troughs and breeding areas to try to have a certain color be bred in the next generation. It's very interesting, right? Now, church, I've, I've tried, and I've studied really hard to try to figure out, okay, is there some kind of positive theological meaning or understanding to these sticks? Right? Do these sticks have some kind of redemptive hermeneutic that you'll see play out throughout the rest of Scripture? Well, sadly, no, there's not. Really, the only theological point I think that we are seeing from Moses here is that Jacob, much like his wife, Rachel, has reverted to old superstition and folklore to try to manipulate circumstances to get what he wants rather than trusting in the good providence and provision of God. You see, Jacob was prone to wander from his trust and love to him, to God alone. Because it was believed in Jacob's day that somehow, right, if you had these sticks, 
where the animals would breed. They would see the sticks, and somehow that would impact the color of the calf or, or the baby lambs. It's not true, right? It, it, it was junk science, so to speak. But it was common practice in that day. But nonetheless, what, church, I want you to take away is that Jacob's trust was not in the right spot. Right? There's no prayers from Jacob. But Jacob did get what he wants, right? His, no matter what he did, it seemed like he got the outcome he wanted to, and his, his livestock would grow. But it wasn't because of the sticks, church. As we will see later on, it was because the Lord provided. It was because the Lord saw what was going on, and the Lord determined to give Jacob what he could not give himself. And over the course of six years, no matter what Jacob did, God continued to provide for him. And at the end of the chapter, of chapter 30, it says that, Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, and camels and donkeys. Which should be a reminder of another son that was chosen by God that came to a foreign land with nothing, but now is returning with a bunch of riches, Abraham. You see these patterns in the book of Genesis. But then starting in chapter 31, we begin to see that Jacob's power, right, and his influence and his increase in riches begin to cause division amongst Laban and the rest of Laban's family. And starting in, and we see, rather, at the beginning of chapter 31 in verse 3, we see God come to Jacob and say, it is now time to go home. You need to listen to me here. And Jacob responds. He responds and says in verse 4 that he goes to Rachel and he goes to Leah and he starts telling them all of what God has been doing, all of what he has been up to, how God has been faithful to him and to his family. And he even recalls that night where he met God in, through this dream at what is known as at Bethel, right? Where he, he spoke to God and God communicated his covenantal commitment to him. Where God bestowed grace and mercy and protection onto Jacob. And he tells them all of this. And says, essentially, I think I'm, I'm going to return home. Do you want to go with me? Are you willing to leave what is known to you and come with me to the promised land? And if you don't know the story, you're kind of waiting in anticipation. What are they going to say? Well, in verse 14, essentially they go, you know what, we're kind of upset with Laban. Our dad has cheated us out of our inheritance. He has spent everything. There's nothing left for us. So yeah, we're going to go with you. We're going to go with you. And so they make a plan to leave. And they do this in a sneaky way, right? They're going to wait till Laban is out in the field shearing his sheep, which would have been a massive undertaking, likely with the amount of sheep he had. And they get on their camels and they take off. But notice in verse 19, what happens before they take off? It says, Rachel went into the household of Laban and stole his gods on her way out, which will play an important role shortly. Now, verse 22 says three days pass past, and then Laban finds out that 
his son-in-law and his daughters have left with all their riches. And Laban seeks out to, to catch up with them, right? He gets on his camel or whatever he has, and he right, begins this chase across the desert. And it says he, he caught up with him in verse 25. He caught up with Laban or with Jacob and the family. And that language, two churches, is not language of like, hey, it's a family reunion. It's language of military, like to, to conquer somebody. So we're seeing kind of where the heart of Laban is at. But then starting in verse 26, right, when, after they catch up and Laban and Jacob finally talk, they have it out. Right? Why did you leave? Why did you not wait for me? And, and even Laban goes so far as to try to project himself as just this, this loving dad and grandpa. He's like, I just wanted to kiss my daughters and my kids. I don't think that's the case. And he even accuses Jacob of kidnapping them. says, why have you draw, made them go out by the sword? Which is not true. Right? Rachel and Leah willingly, under their own volition, went with Jacob. But then in verse 30, he says, but why did you steal my gods? Right? You had all, these, all this stuff, but why did you take my, why'd you take my stuff as you left? Now, just a side note, we're not told, you know, what these, these gods are. It could have been a good luck charm. We're not really told anything about them. But I do want to say that if your gods are able to be stolen and smuggled and put into a saddle, they are not deserving of your worship. Right? They are a false god. Right? If they can be simply taken from your home and given to somebody else, they are not a god worth worshiping. But after this accusation, Jacob becomes defensive, doesn't he? He says, no, we didn't take your stuff. In fact, anybody who did take your stuff deserves to die. He didn't know Rachel took them, right? So there's this, this tension, this buildup, so to speak. And Laban looks around. And he says, well, I'm going to check everything. And he starts checking all of you know, their tents and all of the different things that they have. And he can't find them and and finally, he you know, approaches Rachel, who's on the saddle with the camel. And, and Rachel comments to Laban, like, you know, I can't get up because the way of the woman is upon me, which I'm hoping you guys can all put the pieces together of what that means. And I don't have to explain that this morning. So Laban, but basically Laban exhausts his search, right? He exhausts his search, and, and it comes up empty. And at this point, Jacob kind of snaps in verse 36. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm done with trying to convince you, Laban, of who I am. And he goes on kind of this soliloquy, this, this soapbox of, of wanting to tell Laban how faithful he has been to Laban for 20 years, 14 years of working for the hand of his, their daughters in marriage, and then six more years as simply a shepherd and that the only reason that any of them are in this position of wealth and blessing is because God has been providing for them. And even accounts, Laban, you know that God is in control of this because you've even heard from God in a dream recently. And it seems to strike a core. Because starting in verse 43 and following, both Jacob and Laban decide to make a covenant between each other. 
right? A ceasefire of sorts. Laban expresses his concern for his daughters. Jacob makes it clear that his timing in this land is done. He's not coming back. And they will part ways. Now notice in verse 53 that Laban wants to acknowledge and make this covenant agreement by professing, <coughs> excuse me, professing to both the, the God of Nahor and the God of Abraham. Kind of this dualistic, this polytheistic agreement between the different gods. But Jacob, I think in his own sanctification, he swears only by the fear of Isaac, which is another way to say by the, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, the one and only true God. He swears by him and him alone. And the chapter ends with Laban departing and heading home. Now, church, at this point, I want us to consider the narrative as a whole then. What, what did we learn through all that? Right? What did we learn through just the messiness of, of Laban and Jacob and eugenics and child-rearing? What are we learning? Who's in control? Well, let me bring up on the screen Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17 in the New Testament where Paul reminds all of us of where everything comes from. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Church, even considering the strange narrative, Genesis 30 and 31, I, I believe we see is that the Lord is providing all along the way, right? That he's, he's never giving up his post of being God, right? He's never giving up that he's in control and saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I hope it works out in the end. Colossians and Genesis remind us of who's in control. And so I want to look at three ways that we see the Lord provide in Genesis. The first section is that God provided in both seed and in materials for Jacob and his family. Right? That even through the messiness of her and betrayal, all the sons that were born of Jacob only came through God's provision. Right? Over and over again, we're seeing that God opens the womb. Right? God in his perfect timing brings about children. And one that we should take special notice of even in our day. Because child rearing, it, whether you will have a child or if you have more children or how long your children will live or how they will turn out ultimately belongs to God. Ultimately belongs to him. doesn't mean that God doesn't use the means of, of godly parenting and and godly instruction, but ultimately it is God who's in control. And it's God who brings children into this world. Now, don't hear me wrongly in saying that I'm not saying that Christians can't use the common grace of, of modern fertility and, and modern understanding of you know, being able to look inside the womb and to see what, what's happening there. We can use all of those things as they're glorifying to God, but do not place your hope in them. 
ultimately, no child comes into this world unless God says yes. And we should trust him in that. He's good. Even in this situation of Genesis, many of you know that these sons of Rachel and Leah, and there's one more son that will be added later on, Benjamin, these sons become the 12 sons of Jacob, or later will be renamed as Israel, which then become the 12 tribes of Israel. So even in this section, even in all this messiness, God was building this foundation of redemption that would carry on through the rest of the Bible. The book of Ruth later on would even comment on this. Let me pull this up. This is from Ruth chapter 4, where the elders in that day make a passing comment. They say, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. See, Ruth is commenting, the book of Ruth is commenting that God was building up the house of Israel in this moment of Genesis. So even though they were squabbling over power, affection, right? Their very names are just jabs at each other. God was moving his good plan forward. What grace that is. But God not only provided the, the, the seeds of redemption through this chapter, but we're also seeing this property and these riches that are coming to Jacob. So let's go back and consider Jacob and his manipulation over the livestock with the sticks. What should we take from that? Well, if you look at Genesis 31, verse 12, let me highlight something to us. In that section, we're told that God saw what Laban was doing. God saw everything, and it was God who provided the livestock to Jacob. It was through him and him alone that God was keeping his promise to Jacob to never leave him, to be with him in all situations. It's the same promise, church, that every follower of Christ has today, that Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a good promise that we get to remind ourselves now that no matter what the world throws at us, we know that God has overcome the world. There's no detail that's too hard for him to go, I don't know what to do with that. We may be even put into situations like Jacob and go, I don't know, should I resort to you know, going and you know, finding a palm reader or should I go and resort and you know, playing the lottery? Should I try to take this into my own hands? Well, we should see from here, church, just go, no, no, no. Don't resort to superstition. Don't resort to folklore. Don't resort to all these other things. Trust me. Because even God's people were tempted to do that. We're tempted to take things into our own hands. God's saying, trust me. Trust me here. And what I find very comforting in this verse too, church, is that God specifically reminds Jacob that he sees it all. He sees it all. Right, so when you pray to God and you, you're talking to him about things that are going on in your life, you don't, and it's not a, not a bad thing if you do this, but I want to give you the permission, you don't have to inform God about what's going on in the world. Right? You don't have to say, like, God, I don't know if you know this or not, but I've been feeling pretty anxious. Now, we're supposed to talk 
to God as a children talks to their father. And so I know for my kids, I'm okay if they tell me my feelings, even if I know where they're at. But I want us to realize that when we come to God in prayer, he sees all. And so we can come to him going, you know all the details. You not, and you know all the future. Help me trust you. Help me trust you today. So that's the first provision that we see is, is God's provision of seed and materials. The second provision I want us to consider is God's protection over Jacob. His protection over Jacob. Because multiple times in this narrative, Jacob could have been killed and would have rightly deserved death according to many of the customs of the day. Right? Out of jealousy between the wives or the servants. Right? With the, the, the sneakiness around Laban and, and fleeing without telling him. Right? These would have been things, and Laban even says, I have every right to hurt you, but yet doesn't. And why? Because God's protection. Because God spoke even to Laban, says, you can do not speak good or evil to Jacob. So over and over again, we're seeing God protect Jacob and his promises. Multiple times in this text, Jacob is is being reminded that God's promise and his goodness are going to continue and that no person, no amount of sin, no amount of deception that continues to happen and will continue to happen can thwart the plan of God. It just keeps moving forward despite all its messiness. Right? God did not abandon Jacob in any of these moments. There's never one time it says, you got yourself into this mess, you can get yourself out. See, God always protects his good plan. And here's the, the wonderful truth, I think, for us today is God even protects us from us, right? From our own sinful, fleshly desires. God in his mercy even protects us from us many times. Last provision I want to consider is we see God provide Jacob and Leah and Rachel deep amounts of grace and mercy throughout these chapters. Now, a quick definition of grace and mercy. Remember, grace is receiving something, receiving a gift that you do not deserve. That's grace. Is getting something you don't deserve. Where mercy is not getting something that you do deserve. Okay? And I think throughout this narrative, we see these three individuals in particular receiving grace and mercy over and over and over again. Which hasn't that been the story of Genesis? Where God is choosing individuals who consistently reveal this polytheistic heart of worship. Right? Constantly saying, Lord, I trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm, I'm going to respond to what you have said and done and then do the exact opposite. Where God constantly not giving somebody what they do deserve. Right? False worship is sin. And the wages of sin is death. Right? God could have killed Jacob for the way that he was not trusting him and worshiping false gods at times. Even these individuals who we've, we've heard and seen God do so much in their lives still have this temptation to resort to feeble attempts to self-autonomy and provision. Right, consistently forgetting their dependence on God for all things. 
I think it's safe for us to say that these individuals are just like us, aren't they? Just like us. But we should take heart because just like Jacob and Leah and Rachel, he who began a good work will bring it to completion. Right? He doesn't start something and go, you know, I made a mistake, I'm out. He doesn't do that. And we should point out that it's not God's hand of judgment that he's using as his primary tool of building up and sanctifying their hearts for worship. It's by giving them grace and mercy over and over again. And I think this makes us uncomfortable. That one of God's primary tools to grow in the faith is constantly giving you what you don't deserve or holding back what you do deserve. And we should take notice, because how often throughout the scriptures do we learn about the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And automatically in our head, sometimes we go to, oh man, their faith must have been awesome. These guys must have been the cream of the crop when it comes to devotion and obedience. But as we have learned through Genesis, that's not the case, is it? So when you see the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it's not the quality of their faith, but the object of their faith that God's constantly trying to draw our eyes to, saying, these men are just like you, but these men trusted in the one God that you must trust in also. Because there's only one hero in Genesis 30 and 31. Just like there's only one hero ultimately in the Bible, and that's Jesus Christ the only one who did have utter devotion and obedience and love to one God in all times and all places. And he's not done giving grace and mercy to Jacob. As we continue to walk through Genesis, we're going to... The messiness continues, church. It continues. And we'll see that God continues to give grace and mercy continues to give grace and mercy. But I don't want us to leave here today without us considering the grace and mercy that we have received. Because we're not any different than, than Jacob or Leah or Rachel. And so we should consider the grace of our lives, right? The grace that we have been given. And where do we start with that? Well, I think we have to start with salvation, right? We have to start with God providing a way for our sin to be atoned for, that we can receive the gift of salvation, eternal life through Jesus. And it's a gift he gives us alone, right? We didn't earn any of it, but he offers it to all of us. And even the cross, not only is grace offered, but we also see mercy is given, because what happens on the cross with God's judgment and the penalty of sin, right? The wrath of God, well, Jesus absorbs it there. Is he takes on what we rightly deserved and then gives us what we, and we're withheld from what we actually do deserve. That's mercy. And the grace and mercy that we have been given, church, that's the tool of motivation in the Christian life, right? That's the tool that actually makes you want to, to grow for your love and affection for Christ is by pondering, going back over and over again and considering, what has Christ done for me? How bad was I? Because we don't believe in cheap grace. Even though grace is freely given to us, it's not cheap. It costs Jesus his life. 
It may have been free to us, but it was not free. If you still have your Bibles open, look at Genesis 31.16 real quick. Because I think in this moment, we actually see Rachel and Leah respond respond to God's grace and mercy in the life of Jacob and also their own. Because after Jacob revealed all of what God has said and done and promised to them, what do they say? They say, now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Right? That's the Christian life. Is you receive and you hear what God has said and done, and then you become doers of that word. You receive grace and mercy, and it, it actually picks up your feet to go. Right? It doesn't make you sit in your sin and go, you know, I think I should just keep sinning if God's grace is there. Right? The, the scripture repeatedly says, no, no, no. That's not the case at all. Grace motivates. And I think the only people who take advantage or think that grace and mercy doesn't motivate the Christian are the ones that actually don't understand it at all. The Lord is providing over and over again, church. And I can't get over it. I just can't get over it. I can't get over that I'm even a part of this, these conversations, right? A, a part of the grand redemptive plan of God. And so I think we should end today by thinking and exalting about the Lord's provision and how wide and beautiful His mercy and grace are to us. That His grace is forevermore because the the day of your salvation certainly was a day of grace. But I think every Christian in the room, if you would ask them, have you received grace since then? Oh yeah, every single day there's been more grace and more mercy. Scripture says, it's every morning. It's every morning. And we have the opportunity once again this Sunday just to be reminded of God's provision for us. Be reminded of the provision of the cross then and now and forevermore. What a God we worship, church. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your constant provision in our lives, that you and you alone are the curator of all of human history and that you work everything to your ultimate end. But God, I pray for our hearts this morning that we'd be able to respond to that wonderful truth not with begrudging obedience of, I guess I got to do this, but rather a, a joyful exaltation in our heart because, oh, this is true, then I must respond. Lord, help our hearts do that this morning. God, especially for those maybe that wouldn't even have considered themselves a Christian as they walked into the building today, that, God, that you would so change their hearts that they would, seal, they would see that you and you alone have offered salvation to them. that you and you alone are the very hope in which they desperately need. And that you and you alone, that they can trust with their lives full stop. God, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for all the ways that you're moving in our lives and help us respond accordingly. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.